This presentation is from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Oh, I'd like to introduce Diana Runkle. She's working for Tobias and Tobias. Um, she's spoken at lots of our conferences in the past. Uh, there are some funny talks, some serious talks, and maybe this one's a combination. Or maybe it's just serious. Or, okay, it's a serious one. <laughs> anyway, she's a good, she's a good speaker and a, a, has good insight into uh, a wide range of design issues. Thanks. Can everyone hear me okay? Is this flopped over? Is that still all right? What you're designing will be obsolete by next year. This once was a kickoff to a project. Started me thinking about my work, the longevity of what I design, and the constraints the projects I work on are bound within. Architecture is designed for the ages. Buildings are erected to stand the test of time, weather, whatever nature throws its way. <coughs> Digital interfaces, according to the documentary Design Disruptors, have a lifespan of six years. I'm not really sure how I feel about that. Recently, I stumbled across one of my designs from four years ago that had been redesigned. It was time. I'm okay with it. But another design from six years ago is not going to be redone anytime soon, and to a certain extent, I kind of wish that weren't true. And then that brings me back to the first project, with a life expectancy of less than a year. I was a bit put off at first, but to be honest, at least it was thought about, and the expectation was set up front. Now, services, on the other hand, one could argue exist for the duration of a customer's lifespan. When the customer is no longer a customer, the service, for the most part, is over. But what does lifespan mean in this context? Specifically, how do we define the end, if we define it at all? Is it when they eventually evolve from our initial definition of target market? When they no longer choose to purchase or subscribe to our product or service? Or what about when they're no longer with us? on this earth. How often do we define upfront how long this design is expected to last or include in our scope servicing customers up until and throughout the very end? When we start projects, we establish constraints. Design projects need them. Identify people, define scope, establish timelines, etc. the list goes on. No matter how much we need constraints, inevitably, humans will be human and break out of the boxes we've designed in. And this might be changes in age, circumstance, mental state, or simply in the context of use. But it's not as edge case as we might like to think. We are human beings, not human doings, my yoga teacher once said, quoting someone. Yet so often, we only design for humans doing X, Y, and Z. Let's start with a very common example, everyday banking. In order for my bank to ensure I am me, oops, thank you, no, two-factor authentication is put in place to protect me against fraud. This means whatever I want to do my everyday banking, I receive an SMS on my mobile with a special code, it needs to be entered to complete the transfer. But I love to travel, and twice now I've traveled overseas after notifying my banks, and the experiences have made me reconsider my choice of financial institutions. To set the scene, let's say I possess the, many of the characteristics of the bank's primary persona. I'm of a certain age, have a certain financial situation, I'm technically savvy, potentially. But what's missing 
is my love of travel. And sometimes I travel without a phone. All of a sudden, I'm the target market banking outside of normal context. Even though to me, travel is my normal. One of my workarounds in the past was two phones. One with my Australian SIM card that I only turned on when I needed to transfer money, and the other with an international SIM card to actually use as a phone. That got annoying. So at one point, I traveled without a phone. I packed my tablet and hooked into free Wi-Fi to do everything but make phone calls, and I got around that with Skype and WhatsApp. But what I couldn't do was anything with my money, because I don't have a phone to receive the 2FA code. So then one time I even purchased a new phone overseas, so I could get to my money. And I became anxious when I realized it took a nano SIM. My Australian SIM card that I flew over with was a micro. Once I break it, there's no going back. And I'm not returning to Australia for another six months if I need a replacement. So I broke it. And guess what? It didn't work. The solution on the website, call the bank. But I asked, with what working phone? And there I was, overseas with no phone or ability to access my money. And I started to panic. Yes, my travel card still worked at the ATM, but I no longer could authenticate topping it up. Three days later, I figured out, figured out my new phone was unlocked, but not internationally unlocked, which I didn't know was a thing. Thank you, America. And everything worked out okay, but for three days, I was locked out of accessing my money because the scope of the design solution only catered for validating my identity via my mobile phone with my Australian SIM card. I told my bank I was traveling. What if the design also catered for that context of use? And there was an alternate way to confirm my identity instead. I'm the primary persona. I go traveling. As designers, we need to push the boundaries, push more to explore context of use when designing and factor in the ramifications of the edge cases that might not really be that edge case after all. The great news is, in researching for this speech, I did learn that two of my current financial institutions that I don't use when traveling have considered this in their designs. One asks for the best way to be contacted when I notify them I'm heading overseas, either by email or mobile device. Assuming this applies to authenticating transfers and not just fraud, that's a step in the right direction. As long as I can access the internet, I theoretically can get into my email and verify the transactions. But the second bank takes it a step further and asks if I'd like to be notified at an alternate overseas phone number as well as by email. This could cater for foreign SIM cards, as long as I know the number before heading out of town, that is. But these are two examples where context has been factored into the design solution. Sadly for me, the financial institutions that I use when traveling have not, and I've been left to panic. Maybe it's time to switch banks. Let's talk about another relatable topic of Facebook. Facebook and other social media accounts have given us the ability to anonymously broadcast our thoughts, feelings, and meal choices for the day, whether anyone wants to hear about it or not. I say anonymously because even though our name is next to it, we never have to look someone in the eye when we're saying what we have to say. So over the years, this has meant that certain comments, beliefs, what have you, that one might not have the confidence to say to someone's face, have been articulated in social media instead, but things that it should really have only been said in person instead have been depersonalized online. Five and a half years ago, I missed a phone call from a good friend while I was at work. I waited to check the voicemail until the end of the day, 
And before listening to it, we're returning the call. I launched Facebook out of habit. The top of my newsfeed read, You will be missed, Brad. You're always a great friend to me. Rest in peace. All of a sudden, I <clears throat> knew why my phone rang. But Facebook was the one who got through to me first. From that day forward, it's always bothered me that Facebook was the first to tell me my dear friend Brad had been killed by a drunk driver. It's not Facebook's fault directly, but without the status update feature, for example, I wouldn't have seen the post about Brad before I could hear about it from a loved one in real life, in a personalized way. I can only assume the feature designers at the time did not even fathom the possibility of the announcement of another friend's death, but in this case, that's exactly what happened. And to this day, Facebook has borne the brunt of public outlash for other features that did not con consider the use case of death and the effects it has on the grieving. But Facebook has reacted, and they've redesigned. In 2007, three years after Facebook was launched, they started offering memorialized accounts for the deceased. The entire product is based on human beings, and three years later, design adapted for death of those human beings. It's easy to comment about this in hindsight, but the product is a digital representation of our human selves. And human life, sadly, comes to an end one day. And this isn't anything new. But as human beings, we have an availability heuristic where our brains use mental shortcuts to help us decide the probability of something happening and try to use recent and related experiences to come to a conclusion. Based on your personal experience with death, it hopefully is not front of mind, or likely to be considered probable to occur in the context of your product or service. But it is inevitable, and as human-centered designers, we should be designing for it, if not at least discussing its relationship with our designs and the ramifications for those still alive. Facebook requires loved ones to provide a death certificate to either close, memorialize, or handle certain requests for the account. But I wonder when the experience of the surviving family was brought up previously and to date. I suspect it's still overlooked. The stories about how birthday reminders and year in review have affected grieving friends and family, causing the company to react yet again instead of designing with it in mind in the first place. But at least Facebook is doing something about the ramifications of their designs. Their company that's taking the time or being forced to take the time to reflect on how launch products, features, services are being misused or hurtful and taking actions to correct that. Wouldn't it be neat if we just considered it in the first place? Before someone else is negatively impacted and the company is forced to react? Before I hear about friends like Brad on Facebook, instead of in real life, from a close friend? Why not ask in the ideation stage, how might this hurt someone, or be misused, or impact a family, and then factor that into our MVP? This brings me to digital executors, or more recently, legacy contacts. If you're not familiar, this is someone you identify in your will, or if it's been designed for, in your online profile or account settings, where you give authority to someone else to make decisions on your behalf. In regards to your digital content and whatever happens to it if you pass, whether it's deleted, memorialized, updatable, 
etc. And with the increasing amount of digital content we're producing, accounts we're creating, and digital online selves we're defining, I believe we need to ensure we are thinking and designing for this inevitability for our customers, for our families, for ourselves. And factor in edge case features such as legacy contact so that whatever happens, it's as painless as possible for everyone. Emotional life events narrow our cognitive abilities to next to nothing. This is why pilots, for example, have operations manuals for times of crisis. Although a pilot will have been trained in what to do, when the sirens go off, their brains won't be functioning to its full capacity. So there are clear, concise instructions to remind them of their training. As designers, we need to consider emotional life events and decide which ones might realistically impact our users and then what to do about it. The solutions need to be easy enough for those experiencing these life events to take action, but not simple enough to accidentally occur. Like last week, when Facebook accidentally memorialized millions of people who are in fact alive and well. We are designing experiences for life and everything in which that entails, including context and eventually an end. If you're not already including lifespan in your designs, whether the definition in your line of work is simply the technology, or the customer, or the human being, there are things you can do today to help prepare your designs for potential context in the future. At the very start of your project, you can discuss what are the unintended consequences of what's already been designed if something exists, or how could this design be misused, and what can we do about it today? What's the lifespan of this design? Whether that references the product, the service, the technology, or the person. And what happens at the very end? How does this design support the inevitable end? Whatever that means to you and your line of work. Another option is red teaming, also referred to as ethical hacking. It's where you flip your design scenarios from when your users are in their ideal state of mind and operating at their highest mental capacity to worst case scenarios or stress cases where mental ability is limited. For example, what if the smiling persona wasn't in fact smiling at all and it's 2 a.m. and they're panicked? How might the design handle that context of use? Scenarios like these can start to help you identify where your design solutions fall short. Then you can begin to design for mitigating these circumstances in the first place and build around the limitations we inherently have as human beings, pushing our designs to support the easy times, but much more importantly, be holistic solutions that hold someone's hand through the difficult. Additionally, in preparing for this speech, I discovered the recently launched book, Design for Real Life. I haven't had a chance to finish it yet, but it also talks about everything I'm mentioning here today and gives more examples of where design solutions fall short because of context or lifespan specifically. If you're interested, it also includes additional actions we can take as designers to ensure we are in fact designing for the unpredictability and complications that inevitably occur in human life. Talking through these questions and scenarios with our teammates and clients can only improve what we do, but better yet, the answers can improve the lives of the human beings surrounding us and minimize the need to react to unintended consequences because we designed for them as best we could in the first place. 
I hope you bring this back to your work and discuss the answers. Ideate on context of use, evaluate impact, and define lifespan up front. My name is Diana Runkle. Thank you for listening. This speech has come to its end. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.